Amen. What a, what a fantastic message. I don't know about you, but Satan lies to me. He lies to me constantly, and he tries to convince me that, uh, that, that my failure has the final word, or that my weakness has the final word. But aren't you glad that the cross has the final word in your life? When all is said and done, it's not about our performance, but it's about His goodness. It's about how much He loves us in Christ Jesus. It's about what He has done for us. And so I hope that you know the truth that in your life, if you put your faith in Christ, that is the final word that will be spoken over your life. Child of God, forgiven forever, cleansed, new. The final word is God has made you new in Christ Jesus. And I pray that you know that firsthand. I hope I'm clear with that today, uh, and I hope you receive it uh, as it's presented. It took me a while to realize that, that as a pastor, not everyone hears what you intend to say. You know, you think you've been clear, you've delivered the message, you put it in notes, you put it on the screen, you think you've communicated perfectly what you're trying to get across, and, and somebody misses it. One time I was preaching through a book of the Bible. I think I was preaching through the book of Ephesians. And I came to the passage where it says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I spent about ten minutes in the sermon talking about my understanding of a Christian's relationship to alcohol. And I got a call on Monday from a person who was angry with me, who said that I said it was okay to drink, and I had two families left the church that week because I said we were supposed to be teetotalers. So I know not everybody always gets what you're trying to say. I know when you preach on law and grace that that one person will hear you've got to earn your salvation. And another person will hear that you don't even have to follow the rules. You know, sometimes in my sermon I'll talk about UK and some people think that I can't stand Louisville. I guess some things come across more clearly than others. But anyhow, (laughs) people can get really confused when it comes to to hearing a a, a message proclaimed. And Paul must have known this because Paul writes to make sure that nobody gets confused with his message about salvation. So in the book of Romans, he he, he clarifies his teachings. Apparently some people were making some false assumptions about what Paul was trying to communicate. So he writes this extensive explanation of his gospel. And I guess the theme verse of the book of Romans is chapter 1, Verse 16, that says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God uh, for for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, but also to the Greek. And then he says, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. When we come to that word righteousness, that basically just means a right standing with God. And and this is his main point. How can you know if you have the whole God thing right? How can you know if you have a right standing with him? And, And how do you get this right standing from God? Last week, we started talking about the doctrine of justification. And basically, this doctrine just clarifies how a person is is made right with God. Um, we, we saw the theme verse of the reformers in Romans 3, verse 24, where he says, people are justified freely by his grace 
through redemption that is in in Christ Jesus. And we, we talked about three Latin phrases. Uh, we talked about sola fide, uh, sola gratia, and solo Christo last week. We talked about how these phrases were made popular during the Refor- Reformation, and they, they, they came during the debate over the, the, the concept of, has a person made right with God? How's a person justified? And the Reformers, they, they proclaimed that a person was made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I would say this is not something they invented. It's something that Paul taught, something that Jesus initiated, something that the true church has held to the entire existence of the church. This is the central message of Romans. It's the central message of Christianity. There's nothing more important to understand than what's on the screen here. Salvation comes, righteousness with God comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is the way that God has always worked. It wasn't something new with Christ. This is God's plan from the foundation. Paul uh, continues his argument in chapter 4. He says, what can we say about Abraham? He's going back to day one when he goes back to Abraham. All Jews considered themselves descendants of Abraham. Some Jews believe they were from the line of David. Uh, most Jews revered the law of Moses, but all of them saw Abraham as their father. You know, Father Abraham has many sons, and the Jews thought they were all his sons. And they believed that. And so, so uh, they, they revered him because he had sealed uh, uh, the, the covenant God made with him with the sign of circumcision that the Jews in Paul's audience still practice even some 2,000 years after it was initiated. They still revered revered Abraham deeply, and he says, think about Abraham. What can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? What, what has, has he found? What has he found by works? If Abraham were justified by works, he could brag about something, but not before God. That, that, that's crazy. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So one of the main points that I see in chapter 4 is that righteousness is credited to us because of faith. We are right with God because we put our faith in God. This is consistent teaching through Romans. I'm not drawing this out and making more of it than I should. It's over and over in Romans. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Again, in verse 3, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteous. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Verse 9, for we say this, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Verse 22, therefore it was credited to him for righteousness. Every time you see that, it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a direct quote from Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, at the very initiation of the people of God, Abraham uh, was, was made righteous because he believed. If you remember, Abraham was promised a child. And he thought it was crazy because he was old. His friends thought it was crazy. You've never had kids. You're not going to have one now. His wife thought it was crazy. There's no way we're having kids. But Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. Now, 
The, the word credited, we understand. It simply means to have something put in your account. We, we, we get that. Uh, I was reading about a man who almost three years ago today, a 21-year-old man named uh, Kieran McKeefrey, he woke up and he decided to check his bank account. He, he was going to balance his account before he went off to work, and, and he got a little surprised that morning. When he woke up, he had had almost $2 million that were not his placed in his bank account. Now, what do you do? <laughs> you know, do you, yeah, do you move to a country where there's no extradition? What do you do? <laughs> you know, he, uh, he called a uh, 21-year-old with a lot of character. He called the teller and said, I think there maybe has been a mistake. Uh, after about three weeks of checking into it, the, the bank did say, yes, there has been a mistake. And uh, uh, someone had anonymously uh, credited his account with $2 million and uh, 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 anonymous showed up. And a company received the $2 million that they had put there. And it was his credit was taken away. As I thought about his credit, account being credited and then removed, I thought about how our credit comes to us and it can never be taken away. It is put in our account and it's given to us. It's promised by our Lord and Savior and we shall have it for eternity. It's given to us and it's secure because our credit was not a mistake. Our credit was a gift. And so when we think about the righteousness of God, when we read Romans chapter 4, we are acknowledging that the righteousness, right standing with God, being right with Him, is a gift from our Heavenly Father. This is taught throughout Scripture. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of our sin should be death. It is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Famous passage for uh, uh, Protestants is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For you're saved by grace... Through faith, there it is. And this is not from yourself, it is a gift from God. It's yours. He knew what he was doing when he gave it away, and it's not of works because he doesn't want anybody to brag about it. It is a gift to you. There's two things about a gift that we have to not acknowledge. Number one, when you receive a gift, you didn't deserve it. You know... What do you do when you get a birthday gift? What do you do when you get a Christmas gift? To you, you say thank you. I mean, you know, you can't turn around and give everybody who does that gives you a gift something back. It, it's undeserved. Thank you for giving me this. And not only is it undeserved, it's unconditional. There's no strings attached when it's really a gift. And this was the case with the grace of God. It is the case with the grace of God, and it's so hard for us because nothing's free. Nothing's free in work, nothing's free in, at school, nothing's free in your marriage, nothing's free in your education. And so we think spiritual life functions this way as well. But the Bible says that God gives his righteousness to the one who does not work. Did y'all catch that a minute ago? That, that, that Paul wants to make sure you don't miss this. Righteousness comes to the one who does not work. Notice what he says, but to the one who does not work but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. You know, if you were down on your luck, and I had a mansion on the coast of Florida. Now, let's just imagine, okay? And you needed a place to stay, and you called me and said, Nick, I need some help. I need a place to stay. 
And I said, sure, no problem. I've got an extra home down on the coast of Florida. I'll let you use it for a while. And and you said, oh, thank you, but I can't get to Florida. I'm really broke. And I said, no problem. I'll send you some money. You can take your family. You can travel to Florida. I'll even give you some money to live down there while you're there. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for what you've done for me. And then you get your family. You get in the car. You drive down to Florida. You get in the house. It's better than you could possibly imagine me having. And you really enjoy it. And as you're, as you're moving your stuff in, you notice that pinned in the bedroom is a list of things that you need to do. And then you walk into the kitchen and there's a list of things that you need to do. There's gutters that need to be clean. There's a yard that needs to be mowed. There's uh, the, the uh, bedrooms need to be painted. There's work that needs to be done. Now, while I would expect that any of us who were given that and afforded that privilege would would see uh, that that is our responsibility to to payback. But if I put at the bottom of that note, and if you don't have this done by next week, you're evicted. All of a sudden, it's moved from a gift to a job. Paul wants to make sure you don't mistake the gift of salvation as something that is given to you freely and then you have to earn. Paul's clear here. He says, to the one who works, pays not considered a gift but something owed. And we know that God will not owe any man anything. And and by the way, for those of y'all who don't understand this concept completely, I hope you get this because God does not justify you because you're good. He justifies ungodly people. Isn't that what the passage said? It says, to the one who does not work, but believes on him who what? Justifies the ungodly. Godly. This is so hard for people to understand. We believe that behavior is the basis for the entrance into the kingdom. The only problem is God's not looking for a few good men. He's not asking, have you ever been to prison? Are you really nosy? Have you tried to do what's right? Do you love your dog and, and, and pay your taxes? He's not, he's not saying that at all. He, he, Paul has gone to great lengths in chapters 1 through 3 to say, none of you are there. You're not there. I don't care how good you think you are and how much better you think you are than someone across town. You're not. You are lumped into the category of the ungodly. We are all there. It doesn't matter how nice your house is. It doesn't matter how, how that you've never had a speeding ticket. It doesn't matter that if you treat your, your neighbors well. It does not matter. We are all either perfectly godly or completely ungodly. There is no middle ground here according to Scripture. You can argue with me and push back and say, I don't believe that. You have that right. But you are not biblical. The Bible says there's none of us who are righteous. Not even one. And so the person sitting in prison is no less righteous than the person sitting in the pew apart from Christ. We are the same. We are ungodly when I hear when I say everyone is ungodly I I know people push back in their heart we would not say that in our mind because we know the Bible says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God right we know that's what the Bible says so we wouldn't push back with our mouth but in our heart deep down we push back 
And that's because we compare ourselves to the worst instead of comparing ourselves to the best. The standard of righteousness is Jesus, not Hitler. And Jesus never lied. Jesus never had a wrong thought. Jesus did not hate Uh, Jesus didn't swell up with unjust pride. He was humble. He wasn't argumentative. He thought of others first, and he served even though he was a king. That's what a godly person is like. And anything less is uh, ungodly. And you might say, but I'm not that bad. Okay, all right. But you don't settle for not that bad in other areas of your life. Uh, For those of y'all who have been asking, a couple years ago I talked to y'all about patties. Y'all remember patties? Settlement down, land between the lakes, you know, two-inch pork chop, you know, flower pot bread, strawberry butter, mile-high meringue pie. It's pretty good. It burned down right after I talked about it, so if that happens again, this is the last illustration ever about patties. But I missed that from Western Kentucky. But let's say that I had a trip down to Western Kentucky, and we go, and we were going to eat the the pork chop, and we were going to eat the flower pot bread and butter, and then I was going to top it off with the mile-high meringue pie. And while the chef was baking the Malheim meringue pie, he accidentally tipped over a bottle of cyanide. Why it would be in the kitchen, I don't know, but it's there. He tips it over, and one drop falls in the mix. And I hear that there's a drop of cyanide in the mix. I want to tell you, it doesn't matter how good it smells. It doesn't matter how good it looks. And if you were brave enough, it wouldn't matter how good it tasted. It would be deadly. A lot of us think that we look better than others. And we give off an appearance oftentimes that we are better than others. But in God's eyes, all of us, no matter who we are, have a drop of poison in us that completely contaminates the well. We are all sinners. We decorate, we look good, we may even smell good, but our best does not impress God. And if we're going to be right with God, God has to make us right. And this was the center of the firestorm of the Reformation. Protestants proclaimed, guys, we can't make ourselves right. And they taught a doctrine called imputed righteousness, that God placed righteousness on you, that God brought righteousness to you completely apart from your effort, and there's nothing you can do in your religious life or your everyday life to make you right with God. You're incapable of overcoming your flaw. You cannot fix your sin. We have willfully rebelled against God and fixing it's out of the question, so God has to work from outside of us. So God looks into our bankrupt soul, and he credits out of his abundant richness riches, the righteousness of Christ, and he imputes that into our account. Why the Reformation became toxic is Catholics had another understanding of, of righteousness at this time. They maintained that, that where God brings righteousness, people have to cooperate with God for God to bring righteousness. That they taught a doctrine called infused righteousness, where God uses our actions as a means to bring righteousness to us. You may not be familiar with the term infused righteousness, but what it really means is that, is that you've got to start on the right pathway and God will infuse righteousness, merge righteousness into your life. He does that through, through a sacrament according to Catholic tradition. A, a sacrament is 
a, a means of grace. I wanted to be fair in my definition. Uh, the Catholic Church defines a sacrament, a sacrament as a visible activity that you do given by Christ as a means of grace. A visible activity or a work that you do to receive grace. You participate in some activity and through this work, God, work, God merges grace into your life. And there are seven sacraments in the Catholic Church. You can only do six of them. You'll understand why in a minute. But one of them is baptism. As an infant, if you're baptized, that allows grace to merge into your life. One of the sacraments is Holy Communion. We're going to be taking communion today. In the Catholic Church, communion allows grace to be infused into your life. Uh, another is confirmation class. Another is confession to a priest. Another is anointing of uh, the sick. And the others, too, are, you can, you got to choose one of these. You either get married or you become a priest or a nun. The holy orders or holy matrimony. One or the other. And that is what God uses to bring grace into your life. Now, all of these require faith in Christ to bring salvation, but you receive these by doing works. I hope you see the difference. We proclaim that faith in Christ alone, faith alone, brings salvation, not a work of man. We proclaim that a person is justified by faith alone. And you would think that this would be one of the most important elements in determining where you're going to go to church because most people nowadays say, oh, preacher, it doesn't matter where you go to church. It just matters that you go to church. Okay, I, 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 all right, I, I, I hear you. But I pray that you will go to a place that says, it's not of my work, it's of Christ's work. It's not of my effort, it's of Christ's effort. It's not of what I do, it is what he has done that makes me righteous with God. And are there lots of flavors of those folks? Yes, there are absolutely lots of flavors of those folks. But how we pick a church is really funny, isn't it? I mean, think about how we pick church. Now, let's be honest, we pick church because they sing the type of songs I like. Or we, we, we pick a church because, man, the music there is just so awesome. Or we pick a church because, man, my son's girlfriend, they go, she goes there and that's the only way we're going to get my son in church. Or we pick a church because the kids are happy there, because the people are friendly there, because the pastor's just great looking. You know, that's why people pick churches. And I know that some people come to our church for those reasons. You know, I, I, I hope we're friendly. And if we're not, shame on us. We've got the best news in the world. We should be happy people. You know, I, I, I hope that, that your kids want to be here. We, 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 we work hard to, to share the gospel in a way that they can engage with and understand. I love our music here, and my wife thinks the pastor's pretty cute. But I hope that, I hope that, that you really want to be here because we proclaim a message of Christ alone. Grace alone, and it comes through faith. And that, that, I, I want to be a part of the people who, 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 who teach kids the truth that it's not your works and your efforts. I want to be a part of a people who, who knows that God loves us, and it's not wondering if God loves us, if we've done enough, but we're confident that His grace is enough. And we can rest in that. And this is good news. I beat myself up. I was beating myself up this morning before I came up to preach. And I was like, I'm so not worthy to get up there and to talk about Christ. My righteousness is not in my worthiness. 
My righteousness is in the fact that I trust the shed blood of Jesus to cover my sins, past, present, and future. And I've not put my hope in myself, but I've moved my hope from myself to Christ. And now I can sit back and look and I can say, He is worthy. And so we can say, worthy is the Lamb to cover the sins of the world. And not only the sins of people out there, but also the sin of this person here. And He covers the sin of every person who puts their faith and trust in Him. My fear, whenever you talk about doctrines like imputed righteousness and infused righteousness, is that people will think that I'm trying to make Baptists out of you. I, I, I can stand before God honestly and say, I'm not trying to, to, to create Baptist loyalty, I'm trying to create biblical loyalty. I want you to stand on the truth that has been preserved for us in the Scripture that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you should want a church to believe in justification by faith. And, and if this is not the place for you and you're visiting us today, I get it. But when you go somewhere else, you put the litmus test over that church. Are they faithful to the gospel? And the gospel is it's Christ alone. And it's faith in Him alone. And there's not one thing that I can do to merge that into my life. It comes completely free from Him. That's how you should choose a church. That's where you start anyway. And I'm afraid most people go and attend and look and never ask. We're talking about right standing with God. We're talking about righteousness. People's understanding of justification should guide their church participation and their religious expression. Jesus didn't mandate song style, sermon length, or, or leadership structure. But he did command us to do two things. He gave two ordinances that every church ought to be participating in. He told us that we should baptize people. He ordained this, go into the world and make disciples. And we are commanded to remember him when we take communion. That we are to drink this cup often and proclaim his death as we do. Today we're going to take communion in just a minute. We call it often the Lord's Supper. And our view of how we're made right with God shapes what we believe about the Lord's Supper. You see, because we believe that it's grace alone by faith in Christ, we believe that, that communion is symbolic, not sacramental. There's three basic interpretations of communion. One is that it's sacramental and that the elements actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And when you drink the cup and take the bread, then Jesus comes in you and grace is dispensed through the elements. Another view of uh, the Lord's Supper is that it's a mystical moment where you're spiritually united with Christ uh, uh, the elements aren't changed, but in taking them, your relationship with Christ is enhanced. And I get that because I love taking communion. It is important we're supposed to do this, but I want you to get something because of your belief in justification by faith. There's not one thing you can do that can make your relationship better with God than it is at the moment you trust Jesus Christ. You see, you are positionally right with God, covered forever by His blood. You are in right standing with Him, and there's nothing you can do that can take that away. When we take communion, it is symbolically remembering there is one who gave his life for us, and his life is enough. His death is enough. So that, therefore, because it's grace through faith in Christ alone, communion is not observed to appease God. God credited us with righteousness. 
We also don't believe that the purpose of communion is to make us closer to God. I'm as close to God at the moment I believe than I am when my quiet time's strong or when my offering is big or when my mission trip participation is much. I may feel closer at some moments than, at, at some moments than others, but I'm covered by Christ. And personally, I'm never closer to God because of my lack of effort or because of my exerting effort. The biblical reason to take communion is to remember Christ's sacrificial death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are told these words, and they're going to lead us into invitation and then in communion. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. On the night before the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim when we take communion that his death is the only way that a person can be made right with God. This is our foundation, and just like in a building process, foundations are easily and quickly forgotten. We cover up the foundation, and we move on and we forget about it. But anything built on a house with a weak foundation crumbles. The Lord told us that. Therefore, periodically, we take communion and we dig back down to the essence of who we are, and we remember it is Christ, it is a gift. And we believe. Takeaways. I hope you got this message today. Salvation is grace-based, not merit-based. Takeaway. Expressions of faith should be consistent with belief. How we practice should be consistent with what we proclaim. And when we take communion, remember, we are proclaiming to the world what can make me clean within nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.